0: Welcome back to Housing Matters. Um, Katie here today. We have an extra special, as we say pretty much every week now, um, Housing Matters this week, with uh, David Orr, the Chief Executive of the National Housing Federation. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you very much, Katie. I feel particularly gratified to be back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're the first person we've asked back. It might be the only person we ask back. We'll have to see how (laughs) it goes. see what happens. Do this one. (laughs) So we thought we would have David back to have more of a conversation about his career. As we know, he's leaving the Federation in October. We wanted to have the chance to ask him the questions we were never allowed to ask him before because they could stray into being too cheeky. (laughs) David's looking panicked. I don't think you ever asked me whether you were allowed to ask them
1: before. (laughs)
0: So we've got a few questions, um, informed by what people have asked about on Twitter, um, and we think you'll enjoy it. So my first one, David, um, and we called this episode deliberately Jackanory, which um, I thought of, and I would like people to note that I was the pun master on this occasion. Um, We'd like David to tell us some stories, because we're all used to hearing them in his wonderful speeches, um, and we thought that would be a nice way to sort of explore how you started in housing what you think about it now and where you're going in the future. So on that kind of uh, principle, you'll see what I've done here. (laughs) Um, In Alice in Wonderland, uh, the the king says to Alice, begin at the beginning and go on till you reach the end and then stop. So my first question, David, is can you remember your very first day in housing? Can you remember what you did? Can you remember what it was like?
1: That's quite tricky, really. It's tricky to identify what constitutes your first day in housing. Yeah. Um, I remember a lot about my first job after I left university um, when I was working in a a big old rambling building that provided all kinds of different community services. But the heart of it was that it was a a day centre for street homeless people in Glasgow. And we just had the most amazing group of people who came in and out and used that place. And I, I worked there for a year. I'd anticipated working there for longer than a year. Um, but in one of the great ironies that happens, this project for homeless people couldn't continue because the Gable End began des- detaching itself <laughs> from the rest of the building. So we had to close it down. Um, so I worked there for a year um, and really did meet the most amazing people. Um, there was one guy... Uh, very tall military bearing one eye uh, who had been shot in the eye uh, on the Normandy landings Uh, he'd been a pipe major so he was marching at at the front of all these troops and was shot in the eye and he was drinking himself to death with great commitment, I mean quite astonishing and I once said to him Why do you drink so much? He said, It is because I am terrified of dying. And when I'm drunk, I don't think about it. So the terror of dying, basically from those experiences in the war, was generating behaviour that was going to shorten his life. I mean, when you're 21 you've just come out of university and you've not really met people like that before, that makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Um, And, and, uh, you know some really remark a a really gentle old guy called Finlay, um, who was the nicest man you could meet for six days in the week. And on the seventh day ha <laughs> there's a line on the seventh day he got his money and he drank it. And he was obnoxious and objectionable on that day and everyone had just learned kind of to cope with it. I also <laughs> um it it, it it was a place that attracted a whole range of different people. Mm. Uh, but there were some people who would come occasionally who were quite well known as being um, genuine, violent Glasgow gangsters. And uh, we had a rule uh, for the protection of everyone that you weren't really allowed to drink in the place. And this guy was more than a little bit drunk. Uh, and I said to him, think it's probably not a good idea for you to be here you should probably go Uh, and he did not like this and I managed to get him out the door at which point he grabbed me got a knife out and held it at my throat so here 21 in Glasgow (laughs) a well-known Glasgow hard man with a knife against your throat I had a complete imagination failure thankfully because there was no part of me that was able to imagine that he was actually going to do it. And this is someone who had done this kind of thing before. And a few of the other guys in the place saw it and said, oh, for God's sake, Pete, he's a nice guy. Don't be so bloody stupid. And he put the knife down and I went back inside. Two hours later, I was a shaking wreck.
0: But uh, certainly you learn things yeah.
1: from those experiences.
0: And what's interesting, and I think this is one of your hallmarks, and I can say that, I've worked at the pub for four or five years, worked with David for that whole time, is sort of a sense of humour and a passion and a desire to help people is really kind of evident in the way you've just spoken about that that is very true also now, and I think you see that. So what happened next? Where did you go next in terms of your career? So when I
1: realised that the project was going to close, I'd had a plan. Um, It's great you have a plan and then life intervenes, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, But my plan had been to do two years... Work and then go back to university and do a postgraduate qualification, probably in social Really, work. Yeah. that was the, pl- oh, that was the plan. That. So I did a year. Thought I'm not ready to go back to university, and forty some years on, I'm still <laughs> not ready to go back to university. Whatever else I do in retirement, it won't be that. You're not going to university. And um, thought I need to get another job. Uh, so I saw a job advertised at Centrepoint Night Shelter in London. It was quite close to the closing date. So I phoned them and said, if I put in an application, they said, yeah, if you can get something down to us quickly. This was in the days so where you had to write things um, and post it. And the way that they organised those that recruitment was, you were invited to come and spend a night in the night shelter. Oh, and then really? if they liked you, they would invite you to an interview. And they realised oh. I was coming from Scotland. So they thought, well, what we'll do is we'll ask you to spend a night in the night shelter the day before the final interviews. <laughs> So if we like you enough, then you can hang around and come and be interviewed. So that's what happened. They decided they did want to to interview me. Um, and by the time I got back to Glasgow, they basically contacted me, contacted me to offer the job. And so without really thinking about it at all, like a whole lot of other young Scots at the time, I was on my way to London uh, and worked at Centrepoint. Um, I only did in the end four months in the night shelter because they then asked me to be the team leader of a six month stay hostel for young people. So I was the youngest person in the team. I had no real experience. Um, I look back on it sometimes and think we were really flying by the seat of our pants. (laughs) Um, I think we did some good and useful things and I don't think we did damage. So that's, you know, a kind of decent start. And then I became coordinator, um, center point and the guy who was the chief executive the director at the time was brilliant at telling our story and getting out and raising the money not so good at the internal running so they asked me to do that so i you know i i had jobs with a lot of responsibility pretty much from day one yeah
0: Yeah. and to go back to our sort of forced literary references, which are going to be a feature of this, ruining, ruining the interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Moby Dick, a man spends his life hunting for a whale. When's the moment when you realise that housing crisis is kind of your whale, the thing you're going to spend your life on? Has it already happened by now, or is it you keep on building your career, you get a few jobs, and then suddenly you're like, ah, actually, this is what I want to do.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? At the end of the telescope that you're looking yeah. from, so from this end of the telescope, my career looks like something that was sort of planned and rational. You can right, see yeah, yeah. the step from one place mm-hmm. to the next. It never felt like that coming from the other end of the telescope. Um, so what I, when I was at Centrepoint, um, among the different responsibilities I had was uh, developing some new projects with housing associations. So I began working with housing associations and uh, I chaired um, a hostel committee for another organisation that was working with ho- housing associations. And one of those associations invited me to join their board, which I did. Uh, and uh, I, after a couple of years, I chaired that board. And after I'd been at Centrepoint for nine years, I thought, um, I need to move on. I, I thought it was great. I loved what mm-hmm. I was doing. But I, I, there was a part of me that felt... I'd been dealing with um, the immediate personal crisis of homelessness, and I wanted to do something that was more structural yeah. about how you resolve and this problem. And how you prevent it. And yeah. how you prevent it is pretty fundamental about building more homes. Uh, well, I looked around and thought, well, who's doing that? Housing associations are, they look like good organisations. I've been involved in one as a As a board member and a chair and I thought I'd like to work for a housing association so I thought what jobs could I do (laughs) and at that time they had a role called special projects officer basically the the person who managed the supported housing work Um, I thought I could do that or I could be the boss (laughs) so I thought I'll have a go at um, applying to be a chief executive and rather to my astonishment (laughs) New Lawn Housing Trust decided that they thought I could do that job so I went off to New Long, um, and by that time I was completely uh, smitten, I suppose, yeah. by, by the potential that housing associations have and I have never lost two things. One, my basic anger at how appalling we've been in this country at making sure that everyone is adequately and well housed and, you know, the abject crisis of street homelessness is a pretty compelling way of understanding how big that problem can be. Um, And I've never stopped believing in the potential for housing associations to be a power for good in the land, which I think they are. And right now, I think we've actually reached another launchpad moment where their potential is that they could grow in, in influence in the things that they do exponentially and make just a phenomenal future difference.
0: There's a really nice quote that gets used a lot from Lady Windermere's fan where Oscar Wilde writes, We are all of us in the gutter, but some of us are looking up at the stars. And Sometimes with the way you talk about housing associations, it is that kind of joy at what they do. I, I think you really believe in what they are and what they're trying to achieve. When you reflect on the things you've seen across the sector, is there anything that really stands out to you as like, wow, that is amazing, some of the things that our members have done that you've seen over the years. I know there'll be loads. But is there anything that kind of really stays in your memory that you'll fix on in the future?
1: Um, it's very difficult to summarise all of this, isn't it? Because they, so many organisations doing so many different and differently great things. I don't have rose-tinted spectacles about this. I know that there are problems and that not all of the service is as good as it should be. But I've yet to come across any or any housing association that doesn't deeply care about what it's doing and, and basically want to do a good job. Uh, so here's my best um, attempt at this. Uh, Betty. I met Betty at quite... Uh, actually, I've met a number of people called Betty involved <laughs> in housing associations over the years. But this particular Betty I met shortly after I started at the National Housing Federation visiting a stock a transfer organisation. And Betty was someone who'd lived in the area. And uh, this new housing association, post-transfer, had come across Betty and she'd said, can I do anything to help? And they'd really invested in her and she'd proved to be completely brilliant. She'd motivated people, she'd gone out, she'd got money, she'd helped to get new facilities... Um, and the Housing Association encouraged her and supported her and brought other people in. Um, and what I, what I think about Betty, and there are Bettys absolutely everywhere, is that every community has people who want to make that kind of contribution. The challenge is not just finding them, but giving the opportunity yeah. to do so. And I think the really great Housing Associations are the ones that create the opportunity that allow Betty and all the other people like her to make that fantastic local Mm -hmm. contribution that really helps to bind communities together. And actually, um, I've met people like that all through my life, including in my childhood when I was growing up. And I I do think that, that creating the environment for the Bettys of this world to be the people that they have the potential to be and make the contribution and the impact that they can is really important to what we do.
0: Mm-hmm. And if we go back to, so you're the Chief Executive of the Housing Association for the first time. How long were you there before you moved to the Scottish Fed? Four years. And what did you learn during those four years?
1: Um, I learned, well, my, my housing association was New Lawn Housing Trust, uh, which was based in Hackney and this was in the second half of the 1980s, where the Thatcher government hated left-wing London local authorities and the Labour local authority in Hackney was so busy fighting the government that there were some great people in the council, don't get me wrong, but they were doing good stuff, I think, in spite of that friction. And um, actually looking at, a vindictive central government and a relatively incompetent local government at the time and um, fighting with each other, in, when neither of them were really focusing on how you deliver high-quality services. Um, I, I learned quite a lot from that. And, and I also learned that if that is indeed the case, then don't wait for them to do it. If you're running an organisation like a housing association that has agency and capacity, just crack on. Just do it, and that's what I've always thought is one of the great strengths that housing associations have. And that because housing associations are independent, standalone organizations, despite all the restrictions, there is still something pretty fundamental about being able to say, We see a problem, and we're going to do something about it.
0: There's um, so before this, I was looking at quotes that reminded me of David, and there's an Anne Frank quote that says, how wonderful it it's is... a bit worrying. No, no, don't. It's okay. <laughs> Bear with me. It, Anne said in her diary, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before they start to improve the world. And I think that's been one of your big philosophies about the Fed and about housing associations and what they can do. When you look back and you think about the values, because I think it's a value-driven belief, yeah. what are your values and where did they come from? And
1: describing them is... It was a bit tricky. I know where they came from. I mean, they came from where I grew up. They came from um, the family that I was fortunate enough to be born into. I'm one of these people who um, had a really great family life. Um, My father was a Church of Scotland minister and for most of his working life, and from when I was two, um, that was in uh, a place... On the south side of Edinburgh, called Oxgangs, which was just a big, sprawling new peripheral estate, and he always saw his job as being about the whole place, not just about the people who came to church. And uh, he and my mother, who um, she was a primary school teacher, but got really involved in this stuff. Honestly, what they did was they 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 got people to do things. Um, you know, my dad had a real gift for getting people to. Do things that they didn't think they were capable yeah. of, and you know my mother used to um, organise the women's guild concerts, and there was a it, it, it was a young community, you know there were um, youth groups and Sunday schools and uh, there was stuff happening. Oxgangs was a long way from being perfect, um, but it was a place that did develop a, a sense of its own identity and its own place, uh, and I think. I still think my father was the, the, the best community worker I've ever met. And those values, I mean, his his beliefs and that kind of infused our family, he was clearly left of centre. I remember a Tory councillor in Edinburgh when I was a bit older and working at SFHA saying, oh, God, you're Jack Orson. That man's terrible. He's <laughs> such a socialist. I thought, well done, Daphne. Um, uh, and and you know obviously a minister of the Church yeah. of Scotland a Christian background he was uh, very involved in the Iona community and we used to go to Iona for our summer oh, holidays yeah. when I was a kid which was great um, so all of that that kind of concern for others um, the, the idea of you know being tolerant of, of loving of being forgiving all of those things um, came came from there. Uh, and I, I, I no longer have any kind of um, religious faith I, I, but but the values that underpin that are still my values um and i i i think i was really very fortunate to to grow up in that environment and that sense of being open and engaged and understanding that not everyone in the world had those same opportunities and some people had really tough lives and that wasn't just because they were bad or useless people. It was because some people had really tough lives and that we've got some kind of collective responsibility to try to do something about it.
0: And So does that drive then play out with seeing the job at the Scottish Fed and thinking, I could be a voice, I could be an influencer? Is that kind of what inspires that move?
1: Yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd made it... When I arrived in London, I was young, single... No baggage, I mean almost literally no baggage a <laughs> couple of suitcases <laughs> um, when we moved to Scotland, um I was married, had three children, a dog, a cat that I deeply disliked um, <laughs> and all the accoutrements of that and um we we decided my wife and I decided that we wanted to leave London for all kinds of different reasons um so we we had a kind of family plan which was we were going to move north rather than south because of the way our families distributed around the country and my wife who's uh, from Birmingham said anywhere we like except Birmingham <laughs> uh, I had no particular plan to return to Scotland
0: really? oh okay
1: but that job I mean Carol said to me when I showed it to her she said well if you apply for that job you'll get it <laughs> so we thought about it and I applied for it and then got it and um, yeah um, I I I I think this thing about being a storyteller is important because if you are going to um, be a voice for a group, a sector, um, a movement, yeah. um, then being able to tell stories is how you bring people in and how you engage. Uh, so I think that was part of the attraction and uh, I was um, pleased at the prospect of going back to live in Edinburgh. Um, and I admire housing associations. And Housing associations in Scotland and England, they share a lot of characteristics. There are some things that are quite different. There's no doubt that housing associations in Scotland remain more community-based, more tenant-led um, than is the case in England. Uh, people often ask me which is better, and I mainly say they're just different. Yeah. Um, but honestly, the, the kind of fundamental stuff about being mission-driven, social-purpose organisations that care about the communities that they work in, that doesn't change very much. So having the opportunity to be a proselytiser for something that you deeply admire, that's quite a good opportunity. Yeah,
0: it's a good job, isn't it? It's It's a good job. something you care about and that matters. Um, So you then decide to brave the English Fed at some point what was the driver to come back, the bright lights of London calling? (laughs)
1: Um, It was a challenge. Yeah. Uh, And I'd been doing the job that I did in Scotland for 15 years. I'd had a year out um, where I worked with the government in Scotland on um, community ownership of housing. And I'd enjoyed doing that, but I had no wish to go and work kind of in government. Uh, uh, People have often asked me, not about working with government, but about being in politics. And I've always had a very, I think, clear understanding of the limitations of the influence that you have as Chief Executive of SFHA and now the National Housing Federation. But having a clear understanding of the limitations means that you understand that you have that level of influence. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that doing these jobs, given what I care about, I was going to be more influential doing that than being a backbench MP or, yeah. you know. So um, I, I, I'd i done that job for 15 years. Um, I enjoyed it. I wasn't in a big rush to leave it. I've always been quite fortunate, I think, in that I've been able to move at a time where I didn't feel that I was being pushed out by the place I was leaving. It was more a pull factor. But I saw this job and I thought, I kind of owe it to myself to have a go. Um, It's a much bigger sector. It's a much bigger country, Mm -hmm. a bigger organisation, more potential, um, and looked and felt like a really exciting challenge. So I thought, I'll give that a go.
0: Did you quite like it in the end? (laughs) I I quite quite liked
1: it it in the beginning. It was good. It was. This feels like an incautious thing to say. Um, but honestly, when I walked through the door, I thought, this is where I belong. Mm -hmm. This feels like a fit. And um, I hope I'm not just kidding myself on, but it's felt like that throughout. Mm -hmm. I I feel that I am retiring from full-time executive work. I'm not retiring from life, but I'm retiring from full-time executive life, having had the opportunity to to do jobs that, I wouldn't have chosen it otherwise, I, you know, I, I I look at my life and think how incredibly fortunate, I look at my family and think what a great bunch of people those are, um, the, the opportunities that I've had, the jobs that I've done, the sector I work in, the people that I've worked with and I think I'm not going to, I would not ask to change any of it.
0: So, um. Would you say that you were in the prime of Mr. David Orr just now? Yeah, if we were to go for an, an Edinburgh author, an Edinburgh influence. <laughs> well, the,
1: the the trick, Katie, is always to think <laughs> you're the in prime. your prime. <laughs> uh, and, and my knees are beginning to tell me that they're past their prime. <laughs> but um, I think it, I do think it, it's it's always wise to make the best of the moment that you're living in and be as good as you can be at what you're doing at the time that you're doing it. Um, And when I leave here, uh, I will want to spend more time with my now three beautiful little grandchildren um, and spend a bit more time in Scotland and, you know, have a bit more flexibility. Um, But I'm not going to leave housing behind because I still care about it. And I've got quite a lot of knowledge now um, which might be useful to someone I think somewhere. It might
0: be. <laughs> when you look at the last couple of years, what are you most proud of from your time at the Fed? Uh,
1: that, that's an interesting question because it's a bit difficult to separate the mm-hmm. last couple of years. So, so uh, what I'm most proud of right now is the way that the Federation, as an organisation, in talking to members, has been saying a lot about how important it is that. We are we move. I've, I've worked on this from the day I walked through the door, helping the sector to move from being captured clients of government yeah. to being trusted partners. And that is all about owning your own decision making and owning your own future. And the work that we've done over the last few years on um, ambition to deliver, owning our future. Now, the, the greenhouse stuff that you're so involved in, Katie. Um, I'm really proud of that because it's saying that we're not just exhorting others to do it. But we are trying to take our own advice and own our future as an organisation and as a, as a sector, as a network on behalf of um, what other people are doing. And that has been so energising. Um, someone said to me yesterday uh, that uh, what he thought I'd done, uh, this, is, this is a big thing, was make our sector confident. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's true, then I'd be happy enough to have that on my headstone. Um, So I I think I have, all the way through, worked on how we ensure that housing associations understand the power of their own independence, their own ability to think creatively, uh, and not to be uh, separate from everything else, to be connected, engaged, involved, but as, as owners of their own destiny, building partnerships And every time we've managed to push government a little bit further away, that's not about saying we don't like or care what government thinks. It's about saying there is a different and better relationship if it's a partnership of equals, rather than one trying to colonise and tell the other what to do. So that, I think, has been um, important. And I um, I think I've done a pretty good job of being the custodian of the story that's held housing associations together and has had some resonance with government and, and others. I mean, you know, when we were negotiating the voluntary right to buy deal with Greg Clark, the fact that government believed that if I said this is something that the sector will do, they believed that that, that we were speaking on behalf of everyone, that gave me a lot of power in the negotiations that we had. So, yeah, uh, th- there's there's a range of things individual bits of negotiation and bits of work i hope there's been a coherent thread um but yeah i do kind of think that being the custodian of the story um has has been pretty central to it
0: i think i can guess the answer to this question but do you have any regrets anything you'd change um you strike me as a no-regrets kind of person, but someone who would always reflect I, and learn.
1: I, 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 will, I will leave this job deeply, deeply regretting the fact that we've not managed to get the bedroom tax repealed. Mm. I think that is, I still believe, that that is the worst, most vindictive piece of social policy since the war, because it was so clearly targeted, it was mendacious, it was based on a false proposition, and it was targeted on people who were already poor and struggling. And... Uh, the story that was wrapped around that to justify it, I just thought was was mendacious. Uh, so I'm I'm I am deeply disappointed that that's still there. And of course, I kind of regret decisions that people in government, frankly, on both left and right, have made at various times over the years. But they th- those things don't belong to yeah. us. So I'm, I can't regret things that that we that we weren't that. responsible yeah. for. But yeah. I, I, It's a constant negotiation, isn't it? Life is a constant negotiation.
0: And If you were to be in a time machine and you could go back reflecting on all of this and you could meet 21-year-old David who um, potentially has just had a knife held to his throat (laughs) and is needing a bit of a sit-down, what advice would you give to yourself?
1: I suspect the 21-year-old David I would now be speaking to, wouldn't have. Paid very much attention <laughs> to advice from a boring old fart. <laughs> um, keep going. I, I mean, you know, if 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 I've believed that housing associations are at their best when they rely on themselves, um, I think that's also true for us individually. Um, of course, you take guidance and advice, and you listen to what other people say, but. Um, I think for a long time I've believed that, that um, when we are successful in our lives, it's because we've worked out what our, our own boundaries are, it's because we've worked out what we're good at, it's about being honest with yourself, it's knowing what you're good at, and and allowing yourself to celebrate the things that you're good at, not being unreasonably modest about it, but also knowing the things that you're not so good at, and either dealing with it or getting other people to do those things. One of the great things about being chief executive is that if you really don't like to do something, you get <laughs> someone else to do it. But but that kind of personal resilience and, um, yeah, hold on to the things that you believe in and um, make your own way. I, I, I do think that's um, that's important. I think, for me, having that value base and having grown up, in such a secure, um, loving family environment meant that I had a head start on many other people in in being able to work out who I was.
0: And if you were still in that time machine and you kind of looking to the future, what do you see for the sector? What's next, do you think?
1: I said earlier that I think we're at a kind of launchpad moment. Um, I I think... Partly by accident, partly by design. Um, We now have a group of organisations that are more self-confident than was the case a few years ago, that have huge, collectively and in many cases individually as organisations, huge assets. Uh, And uh, for the bigger, a business model, which for the very first time in our economy ever... We have large-scale developers of new homes whose fundamental business model is mixed tenure. Who, If you want to see a mixed community and you're a housing association, you have the potential to build it. You don't have to be on the coattails of a developer or running along after a government. It, it, th- there is an offer here that absolutely no one else in the economy can make. And it's an offer that I think has huge power. Um, I think that the sector needs to be bold. I think... Um, I often say to board members, uh, and I spend a lot of time with board members, if you define yourself as risk-averse, thank you very much, but can you go and get another job? <laughs> because no one ever changed the world by being risk-averse, and we're still in the business of changing the world. But I think um, for the first time in a long time, we're broadly facing in the same direction as government. We're not fighting. Yeah. We are, I mean, just this week, you know, the the the. Social Housing Green Paper, the Rough Sleeping Strategy, they're both flawed. They both lack ambition about new supply. But it's a long time since we've had anything as coherent Mm -hmm. as either of those documents about where we're heading for. And there's very little in either of them stated as ambition that we would disagree with. Mm -hmm. And we've got government and an opposition, both of which say we've got huge ambitions for housing which we know we cannot deliver without... The the help and engagement of our friends and colleagues in housing associations. So if we get it right, I think the huge, fabulous stuff that we've already done has the potential just to be a launch pad for something even better.
0: Thank you so much, David be more projects to come on behalf of the staff team i think i will say it's been absolutely wonderful working for you um and hearing just all of that now is just again you get the goosebumps that you always get when you hear <laughs> you speak um, And i hate to say it because you don't want to be that creep that says that to their boss but it is true and um, thank you so much for your time that was amazing to hear and i'm sure uh, there's more of it to come at the summit so um i hope the people who are listening are going to make it along to that because i can imagine it's going to be a rather barnstorming final speech
1: well i'm certainly hoping so a barnstorming final speech at the end of what looks to me like a really radical, different and exciting new venture. The summit is not the same as the conference we've been running. It is a genuine attempt to do something different and much more engaged and exciting. And if my bit is going to be barnstorming, then what we're going to hear from all the people from the greenhouse teams and the young leaders and the, that engagement with the future will be where the real excitement is.
0: Thank you very much, David Orr. Housing Matters is the podcast brought to you by the National Housing Federation, presented by Katie Teasdale. Our producer is Helen Jeffrey.